Well, this week uh, in New South Wales, the Special Commission of Inquiry into Gay and Transgender Hate Crimes began. And on the line, I have historian, activist, author and uh, original Mardi Gras protester, Gary Wotherspoon. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jane. Uh, let's start with the uh, terms of reference for this inquiry. Uh, as a historian and also as an activist, what jumps out to you? Uh, look, I'm really impressed by the uh, focus of, of the inquiry. Um, they're, they're going to look at those cases which the police sort of glossed over. And uh, there's a whole range of them. I think there must be nearly 80 or so cases. They've been through enormous amounts of uh, records and things, eliminating those like deaths of kids or deaths in, uh, in speedboats and things like that, looking very much at suspect cases which could be on gay beats or around the gay ghetto area in Oxford Street. So they're, they're narrowed down and they've got the powers to call witnesses. And so I expect there'll be several police officers will get a very good grilling. Yes, indeed. It's looking at 88 cases in particular from 1970 to 2010 that remain unsolved. Um, and there does seem to be uh, some dispersion surrounding the police, especially as there was so much ingrained homophobia within the New South Wales police force. Of course, you saw that in the 70s as an activist, and that was one of the reasons why you were protesting uh, at the original Mardi Gras. Um, you must feel like in some ways that protest has yet again been vindicated. <laughs> yes, yeah, 30 years later, or 40 years later it is, yes. But it is a vindication, and it's been a very slow process, and it's really been like pulling teeth from the police. Like a lot of institutions, they're really reluctant to acknowledge their past abysmal behaviour, and so this will actually, in a sense, be a good... Uh, putting a, a, show, a searchlight on police behaviour in the past. And hopefully, you know, they'll eventually acknowledge that this was a time in which they did represent some terrible, terrible aspects of how to deal with <laughs> rate-paying citizens. Of course, this inquiry, it's, you know, it's focusing on, on numerous decades starting in the, in the 1970s. You were an activist in the 1970s. As I said, you protested at that original Mardi Gras in 78. Can you tell us what life was like for Sydney's gay and trans and lesbian and queer communities as we now know it? Um, you know, what was it like? Well, look, um, we, we really, the first gay organisation of, was camp set up here in Sydney. So from the 1970-71, there was a small group of activists. And, you know, gradually over time, we uh, took to the streets and things like that. So there was very gradually over the 70s a clear presence of gay activism on the streets of Sydney, gradually growing. And so I think that also paved the way for the point where in 1978, when the police, as they did, you know, tried to dis uh, disband what was a legal march. We had a, we had a permit. Like when they tried to disband it, why people were so incensed and thought, well, you just can't do that to us. But they really had been utterly, utterly unsympathetic to uh, the, the gay and lesbian and queer community in any way. I mean, in, in many ways, it was Police Commissioner Delaney 
in the late 1950s who said communism and Australia are the greatest menaces facing Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So linking, linking, you know, political activism to communism and human rights and homosexuality and saying they're a great evil. I mean, we've come a, a long way, as this special commission of inquiry shows. But it sounds like it was horrendous in the 70s for the community where there was, you know, great fear from the broader society of, you know, being stigmatised, but also fear of violence from police. Uh, yes, look, I think once the uh, gay lib started, early 1970s, there was a much greater sense, a much greater public awareness that there were these people called homosexuals and they were out there creating political mayhem in some places and things like that. So once you become identified as a certain group, there are those who are going to hate you and want to react against you. So I think homophobia, um, certainly uh, as overt as it was from the 1970s, is partly a reaction to the development of gay activism itself. Absolutely. Of course, the Special Commission of Inquiry also covers the 1980s. That was an incredibly difficult time for the community, wasn't it? Because, you know, there's, there had been some advances made after that first uh, Mardi Gras in 1978. In the 80s, you know, um, the community was mobilising. It wasn't until 1984, of course, that homosexuality was decriminalised in New South Wales. But in the early 1980s, HIV AIDS began. And that created even more stigma and led to, I think, some of the violence that this special commission is investigating. Yes, look, um, AIDS certainly had a, what you might call, a detrimental effect in that uh, suddenly, a lot of the uh, many parts of the community, people like Fred Nile, professors of politics and things like that, were saying this is what you know degeneracy and uh, leads to. We are now infecting all of society. So there was a, a level of what you might call very public uh, condemnation of gays uh, until it was really very clearly established this is a public health issue, not a morality issue. But the one benefit we did have, the activism from 1978 to 1984 to get law reform here in, in New South Wales, very quickly, once we knew we had law reform, we were able to switch much of that activism straight over to working for HIV AIDS issues. Did you find that, you know, even though decriminalisation had happened, um, that because of the decades and decades of discrimination and stigma, that it took so long for societal attitudes to change and that has contributed to the violence that this special commission of inquiry is looking into? Yes, look, um, even though the law changes, attitudes don't instantly change in either the community or the police. It takes a generation or so for this to actually occur. And up here we did have a uh, police liaison officers working. There were programs in, in, introduced into police training programs about how to deal with minorities, not only the gay minorities, but racial and ethnic and cultural minorities. So there were programs and gradually change has taken place. But institutions, I mean, even now, um, there is still a great deal of reluctance amongst the older police to acknowledge that this is what the new world should be about. 
To what extent do you think governments contributed to to the kind of you know violence that the community has has experienced by kind of condoning homophobia? As Nicholas Parkhill, the CEO of Acon, said, they had a very high tolerance for homophobia. Well, I mean, we only have to look in the past year. Um, the elections up here, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison was supporting a very transphobic uh, a candidate in the election in North Sydney area. Um, in state parliament here, Mark Latham introduced a very anti-trans uh, bill. So, yes, <laughs> governments haven't necessarily improved all that dramatically at all in certain areas. And uh, the other thing about that is even um, the institutions of society do take time themselves to change. The younger generation of people coming through now are much more aware that we're just like them, except that we like someone of our same sex for <laughs> recreation. Gary, you're in the thick of the community. You live in, you live in Darlinghurst. Uh, what's the impact on the community that you're observing as a result of the hearings that began this week, you know, into, into uh, trans and gay hate crimes, unsolved cases? Look, there's a lot of interest, a lot of street chatter. You go into the bars and things and people are talking about it. But I'm not sure once you get outside the, uh, the what we might call the gay ghetto area, how much, certainly if you go to Western Sydney, and I'm not sure if this is like Western Melbourne and other, the outer suburbs, whether there is even much awareness of how important this is or whether they're really interested in it. Of course, you have been involved in the Bondi Memorial. Tell us about that project. Uh, look, that was, that's a very good example of um, a local council, a local government, acknowledging that something really terrible had happened in the past under their purview. And so they. Uh, I, this was an initiative, I think, from initially from ACON, but certainly Bondi, the Waverley Council, took it on. And the, the, the memorial there is really very understated, but very nice. Little plaques scattered on this little rising bit of, not imitation sandstone, but rock much the same colour as the rocks on where the beat was. And of course, the memorial is for people who, who were found to be, have, you know, had violence committed against them or indeed had died. Yes, very much so. It, it commemorates those who either lost their lives or experiencing very extreme violence. And it was certainly a case here, but these, these, there's so many cases here, the police were utterly indifferent about. How do you think this special commission of inquiry is impacting on the police? What kind of, you know, responses are you hearing from the police? Well, look, uh, the commission themselves, uh, they subpoena uh, documents from the police. The police are giving them those documents and things. And certainly in uh, Peter, uh, Peter Gray's uh, opening introduction, he highlighted that what, what this does indicate was how a little um, action the police took on some of these cases when it was clear that if, say, you've got five murders in, or five dead bodies in a matter of two years in the one place, why would you just presume it's accidents when it's a known gay beat? So that's one of the things that I think is really coming out from this inquiry. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it must be kind of, you know, bringing out a lot of grief and loss for people and a lot of emotion for activists like yourself that remember those high-profile cases, that remember some of the lower-profile cases as well, but were kind of on the front line, you know, of activism during these dark days. Look, we had, I I can remember uh, the front page of one of the Star Observers uh, here at the time. The headline was, it is our blood running in the streets. It's the blood of our brothers and sisters. And this was very much how it it, it struck us at the time. And parts of our community were just being targeted and there was no real recourse. What kind of outcomes do you think the community would like to seek or see as a consequence of this special inquiry? Ah, well, look, think South Africa and they had a, a, a truth and justice in pursuit of truth and justice, very like the ACON report. So hopefully an enormous amount of uh, material will come out. The police will acknowledge that there there were mistakes, is a polite way of putting it, that there were things done in the past that should not have been done, things should, should have been dealt with differently. And hopefully it will indicate that they are willing to move on and that those attitudes are no longer an inherent part of that institution. And I think all, I mean, Australia is a multicultural society, and even though we're only one element, one minimal part of multiculture, I think it will be a lesson that, all right, in a multicultural society, the world can move on, and those who are there to nominally protect us will be protecting us rather than inflicting violence on us. And I think this is very true in case for Indigenous uh, uh, Australians. Absolutely. Of course, the uh, inquiry is getting heaps of international media attention. It's kind of the first of its kind in the world, isn't it? And hopefully it will set an example so that other countries follow suit. Yes, look, I I wasn't aware, but as uh, Peter Gray actually said, yes, it is a first. And I think it actually will be a very interesting um, precedent for many other countries. I'm sure Peter Tatchell over in London will be very interested in what's going on here in Australia. He's an Australian, or he was an Australian himself. And I'm sure in parts of America, in San Francisco and New York, they would also be very interested in a process like this being set up and where it leads to. Of course, you are a very well-regarded author. You've written numerous books, and one of them was Gay Sydney, A History. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, look, as a historian, you don't often get the opportunity of finding a whole new field that no one's ever been there before. You don't, you're not really quibbling with someone else about what they said. So it was wonderful to actually think, here's all these things. So far, all we used to get was newspaper reports, criminal reports, and things like that. But we started, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s in recording, getting oral histories from a whole range of older gay men about how they had grown up, what their lives were like, what their social lives were like. So we started to be able to develop a real picture that there was an alternative life going on below the surface. And once you start looking, you know where to go. And so we, we, I mean, tapping right back into um, 1890s when there was a newspaper published in Sydney about the Oscar Wilde of Sydney, people who went by the names of effeminate names of effeminate actresses up and down the street, who went to Turkish steam bars, who uh, had a haunt in a a pub in 
Burke Street, Jeff Belfast, Oxford Street. So why don't you start to look? You see so many little connections leading you here and there. So it became a very interesting uh, process for me to research this. And once you look into the theatrical world, I mean, some of the shows that were put on in the 1930s, they were amazing. A, a, a comedian going on the set stage singing, I'm a queen, I'm a queen, just look at me now. So this sort of thing, it's there. But once you, you've got to start digging, and once you start digging, you do find it. Wow, so you really uncovered some very flamboyant parts of Sydney's gay history, as well as the bleak stuff. There was the really colourful, kind of, you know, trailblazing, vibrant cultural stuff that's kind of been forgotten, and you unearthed it. Well, look, and, and clearly, I mean, much of social life before, say, the 1960s, the sexual revolution, before all that, it was mainly friendship networks, how our communities lived their lives uh, so that they never felt isolated. In the 60s, up here in Sydney, a lot of clubs developed, the Pollys, uh, Terrigals, uh, and others. And so that was like friendship institutionalised. So that was also another thing that was growing behind the, behind the, the public facade at the time. So there has been constantly, since World War II, this gradual bubbling away. And certainly it came out in the 1970s. It had its, uh, uh, you know... Back, uh, stepping back in the 80s, 1980s. The pr- pressure was on over in the 1990s. We got law reform. We got uh, same-sex marriage eventually. But there's still issues. The trans issue now is very much like the gay and lesbian issue was 50 years ago. Absolutely. Now, Gary, you mentioned World War Two. What were some of the stories and anecdotes you unearthed from Sydney in World War Two, gay Sydney? Well, look... <laughs> Everyone likes a man in uniform. <laughs> Some of the, the, the stories were very, very interesting. Um, guys who met each other either in training camps and have been together ever since. They, uh, guys who formed relationships when they were out in the battlefield and things like that. But the other very, I think, slightly amusing thing was that during the war, they developed these entertainment troops to go around to entertain the troops in, in the battlefields and things like that. And many of the troops, because they couldn't take women there, they had uh, cross-dressing what we might call drag queens. And so many of the guys who would have been arrested for dressing up as they did prior to the war were paid money to go and do it in the war time for the soldiers. And some of them even got asked for dates after their show when they're out on the, <laughs> in the front lines. Wow. And then, of course, it went back in the other direction like a rubber band, didn't it, and became very repressive in the 1950s. Yes. That was partly the Cold War. And certainly, uh, partly, Britain had a lot of homosexual scandals. And the problem here, of course, is if you criminalise something, then those people who are criminalised are liable for blackmail. And so this happened to the Vassal case, uh, the Burgess and McLean cases in Britain. So I think people were very much aware that a criminal element, as we were then, was subject to blackmail or coercion. And so we were seen as a potential threat to, you know, <laughs> the good of Australia. Gary, um, in, in Sydney's Gay History, in the book that you actually, uh, actually wrote, what's your favourite era that you uncovered and why? <laughs> I'm still enjoying it, James. <laughs> My favourite era, probably probably the oh, 70s, 80s, despite AIDS. 
I mean, the seven, late 70s were really just party, 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 party. The 80s, you did have AIDS, but you got a real sense of the community coming together, creating things like Community Support Network, the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation. So you got a real sense of the community rallying about and looking after those of us who weren't able to be look after themselves. But both those eras were. I mean, it's gone downhill now. Uh, Oxford Street became so famous, so trendy. Rents went up. Uh, a lot of the shops just simply had to close. They couldn't um, keep the rents going. And, of course, the internet's had a huge impact as well. So it sounds like, you know, um, Gay Sydney is kind of going through a bit of a kind of, you know, um, negative time at the moment when you look at those kind of, you know, cultural kind of, you know, closures. Yes, it is. It, look, Oxford Street, Oxford Street is really on the downs at the moment. Um, you know, a, a smartphone, why would you go and sit in a cold bar for three or four hours on the chance you could pick up a man and get on your smartphone and you might find within half a, half a kilometre there's, you know, 10 or so people already waiting. So the smartphone has really had a detrimental effect on parts of the social life in Oxford Street. Certainly the... Um, the, the sort of economic downturn also had an impact. But I walked up Oxford Street last night after dinner and the pubs suddenly are starting to come back. There's new restaurants starting to open. And I think with Sydney World Pride, um, even though parts of Oxford Street, which are derelict, uh, the City Council gave uh, Sydney World Pride uh, $300,000, I think Monday night, a decision to try and beautify Oxford Street, whatever they might be. My own thoughts on that would uh, cover up all the awful hoardings with a mural. Many aspects of uh, Oxford Street's very flamboyant and interesting queer past. Our queer history going right back into the late 19th century. Absolutely. Gary Wotherspoon, it has been an absolute joy to chat with you on 3CR this afternoon and to hear your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jane the wonderful historian and author and activist Gary Wotherspoon there. And if this interview has caused distress, you can go to qlife.org.au. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Suzanne Vega. Song of Liberty 
Depeche Mode there. It's called The Heart. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Up real soon, Patrick Liversey, the great actor and producer, to talk about their new production at Chapel Off Chapel. But in the meantime, here's Taming Parlour.
Jane Parler there. Let it happen. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Joined by Patrick Livesey, the co-producer and actor in Bronwyn Coleman's uh, play, Cave Men. It's happening at Chapel Off Chapel from November 23rd to December 4th. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me back. I can't believe it. You've um, produced seven productions this year. Is that really I know, possible? It's a bit much. It's, it's incredible, a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've done dirt. You've you've done Gone Girls, you know, and uh, and now you're doing Cavemen. Tell us about this production. So, Cavemen is an amazing play that Angus Cameron started writing back in 2015. Uh, it was very much him just wanting to put on the page his experience as a gay person living in Melbourne. Uh, and over the years, it's gone through several rounds of development. It's been shortlisted for a bunch of awards. It won the Queer Playwriting Award back in 2020, um, which is when I came on board. Uh, and we've just been kind of looking for an opportunity to do it. And this year, we were fortunate enough to receive support from the city of Stonington to put it on at Chapel of Chapel. And it's kind of just all come together. Um, but it's incredibly exciting to be doing such a kind of mammoth play because it's, t- it's two acts, it's two hours, it's four people. Um, it really has like a heap of guts to it, which we're getting into in rehearsals at the moment. So it's just really exciting to be ending the year with such a huge, huge play. Yeah, so it explores the stories of four friends over decades. And one of the things I find fascinating is that you're, you're staging this production uh, to celebrate, commemorate 40-plus years of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. Yeah. Tell us about the links between that and the themes in the play. Well, when we were presented with the opportunity to do it this year, we then realised it was not only the 40th anniversary, the decriminalisation of homosexuality here in Victoria, but it's also the 40th anniversary, the first diagnosis of HIV-AIDS in Australia. So it's a, a weirdly symbolic year for the queer community and I think a really great time to look back on the progress that's been made, what is life like now for queer people, for gay men um, in particular, which this play explores. And really the play is about relationships. It's about love. It's about heartbreak. Um, It's about the loneliness we all feel as humans, but in particular from a queer experience. Um, And it's just really exciting and refreshing to be going into great detail about these people and their lives because it's um, it's not often that four queer actors get to work together telling their real stories. Um, it's very often that you get one person being able to do that, um, but to get four all bringing their own experiences is really is really exciting. And it's such a great cast. Like we've got Yu Chen Wang. Um, who has been in a heap of productions and is going to be in a SBS series, Safe Home. We've got Harvey Zielinski, who's an amazing trans actor, who's a two-time Heath Ledger Scholarship finalist. Uh, and then we've got Josh McClelland, who's joining us at the last minute. Um, but everyone, I can just tell you from being in rehearsals all this week and last week, everyone is just on fire. And it's it's so fun to be seeing actors working at this level all kind of riffing off each other. Yeah, now tell us about the character you play. So I play a character called Tim, who is a boy from the country 
um, and he, for whatever reason, is has just has this burning desire to succeed and make a life for himself. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. He just he needs to be okay, and for him, being okay is through material gain and having a job. Um, succeeding in that job. Uh, and so it's really fun to be going on Tim's journey um, as he succeeds in all the ways he'd initially planned, but he obviously realises that, oh, I still feel empty. What What is this feeling? And, you know, he turns to drug use. And so it's been quite interesting and difficult having to explore how highly successful people um, function with um, drug addiction. So that's a big part to his character. Uh, but it's just, it's actually just really nice for me to be exploring a character that's so close to home because all year I've been playing, you know, I've played Julia Gillard, I've played a Russian, I've played eight different people from my family. So just to be settling into someone who kind of has a bit of a similar history to me is quite nice for a change. I don't really have to reach very far. <laughs> playing eight separate people from your family, that sounds exhausting. It was, yeah, it was a huge undertaking that I'm very relieved to um, be done with now. But it was so wonderful to be telling that show was called Naomi. It was about my mum and her passing away um, uh, from suicide, which I, I hope is okay to mention here. Obviously, if if that triggers anyone, then please seek help. You can call Lifeline. Um, uh, but that show was really great for me to be able to understand what happened to my mum. I, I interviewed people from my family and then turned those interviews into these eight characters that I played. And it was just great to be able to bring that story to so many people over the week of Melbourne Fringe that I did it for and to have so many people really understand what I was doing and share with me their own experiences. It was just beautiful, really, yeah. And you really don't shy away from the emotional labour in your roles as well. You're not afraid to confront the difficult issues. Uh, and the character that you're playing in, in, in Cavemen, it sounds like a really challenging role, but because you're so intense with the many roles that you've played this year, it sounds like it's kind of a bit of a holiday for you. It is. I mean, I won't go so far to say it's a holiday. I definitely joked to Bronwyn, our director, I definitely thought it was going to be a holiday, but having done two weeks of rehearsals, it's just a whole other thing. Like, every character kind of poses their own uh, challenges. And for Tim, there's a real um, longing for love and security, which, as an actor, when you're kind of, accessing all of those parts of yourself, that kind of deep, deep longing, it brings up a lot of stuff that you have to deal with. So it's not as easy as I thought it would be, but it's definitely, um, it's not as much of a challenge, I'll say, as having to put my sh- put myself into the shoes of, uh, you know, someone who's living in, um, in Russia or, you know, my grandma. <laughs> Tell us about some of the other characters in, in Cavemen. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a really hedonistic play. It is. It's so, yeah, there's so much passion and kind of um, life thrown into all of these four characters, which is really fun for us. So I play Tim. Um, there, Joss plays Oscar, who's kind of that young, privileged queer that I think we all know who just everything seems to work out for them. But, you know, they obviously, through the course of the, the many years of the play, life 
throws them a few curveballs that they have to deal with to kind of take them down a peg from that privileged position that they start at. Harvey is playing Chris, who's this really kind of, on the surface, such a cuddly teddy bear that just has all of these deep, deep insecurities and fears that he's not good enough. And I think Chris is the character that we all really relate to when we're talking about the play. Chris is the one that we're like, oh, I feel like such a Chris sometimes. Like, he just has really struggles to see his own self-worth, and that really comes to bite him in the butt later. Uh, and then Yu Chen Wang has a lot of fun playing Mike, who's just the kind of dream guy who, you know, he's a DJ. Everything seems to work out for Mike, but for some reason he just can't find the love that he's looking for in other people. Um, what I really love about the play is it's kind of our own little queer sex in the city. Like everyone gets to find their part of their personality in the characters and do that little mix and match game, which, you know, is always pleasurable for us Sex in the City fans. So you're co-producing the the play. Did you get the character that you wanted? Like, how did you work out who gets who? It sounds like it, there would have been a bit of jostling, perhaps, for, for some of those characters. We definitely started with a blank slate. So Bronwyn had her idea of who she wanted um, us on the producing team, because originally my partner, Will, was going to be in it, but they... Uh, we're very lucky to receive a job um, filming in Brisbane, so they, they've had to withdraw, but we've gained the amazing Joss. Uh, but no, we went into the audition period being very open. Um, we all said that we were happy to play who, whomever um, kind of, you know, seems like the best fit for us based on who we found because we really wanted to make sure that we were casting the best people we could find and the people that really, really just embodied the characters that we were looking for. And we were so lucky to find Harvey and um, Justin. So it all, yeah, it all just worked out. And then I ended up getting Tim, who I was really happy about, because Tim was who I was kind of drawn to. Tell us about the soundtrack that Danny Esposito has put together for Cavemen. Yeah, it's so fun. So... Angus wrote the play with so much of his own kind of musical experience in there. So um, Angus is very much entrenched in the queer party scene here in Melbourne. So there's a lot of um, disco in there. There's a lot of techno in there that kind of is written into the script to inform what's going on for the characters. And so Danny has the absolute pleasure of taking that and um, expanding on that and bringing into that their own experiences as a composer and a designer. Um, so I can just say that it's not only a great play to watch for the acting, but also the experience, just the soundscape and the, the music aspect to the show is also really fun for the audience. It sounds like the cast is having a great time rehearsing. Tell us about the rehearsals. They sound really fun and high energy. High energy, but also I think it's nice to have a rehearsal space where people are given the time and the security to really go deep because that's what we want from theatre. We want people, we want actors who are brave enough to kind of go to the depths of their humanity and kind of reveal that to the audience. And I think what Bronwyn is so wonderful at as a director is giving actors that space and that sense of safety and so it's been just a very fruitful few weeks and I'm looking forward to the next two to continue to open that and to just see how these four of us are just beginning to reveal ourselves through the characters and we're not afraid to go to those kind of messier, uncomfortable places because that's what Angus has so beautifully written into the play is 
Of course, these four people are charming and likable and magnetic, but they're also messy and they're dark and they're vulnerable and sometimes they don't make choices that are very nice. But I think that's what we as an audience want to see. We want to see people really grapple with those questions around, you know, what what is it to be a good person to live a decent life? And, you know, also how do we make mistakes and how do we come back from those? And I imagine Bronwyn Coleman's directing style is taking you into places that you didn't think these characters might go. Definitely. That's always so a big part of our rehearsal style is improvisation. We spend the first two weeks um, off text, just improvising the circumstances, which also, which just means that as actors, you just get to breathe life into all those parts of the character and the play that um, are kind of niggling away in the back of your mind. It means you get to do the scene and fail. So if some if a scene requires two people to fall in love at the end of the scene or for them to kiss passionately at the end of the scene, improvising means that you can see what happens if they don't. Like, how does that scene play out where they end up walking away from each other? Which means that when you come onto the text and you do have to kiss, you're kind of filled with all of that intention and all of that understanding of what brings these two people together. Which means that for an audience, you're watching something really full of life and really vivid and exciting, not just two actors kind of playing out their blocking or, you know... Their, their little one, two step dance choreography. You're actually seeing two actors pursue something and go after something, which just means that it connects all at a much deeper level for the audience. It sounds like 2022 has been a year that's given you great momentum as an actor. How do you feel that you've changed as an actor starring in all these productions this year? I feel so blessed because in Australia, it's very difficult to get that kind of experience doing theatre. Like, I just feel so fortunate that I've been able to give myself almost like a year straight of just being on stage, being up in front of an audience, trying things out, seeing what works. And I can definitely feel it in my performances now, how much just more... um, space and flexibility and you know freedom I have to just try things and connect with the audience and not be um you know so confined by whether it's fear or insecurity or self-doubt I just I really enjoy the experience of being up in front of people and I really I feel like I'm at a point now where as an actor I can offer audiences a great experience every night and that's you know that's the goal as a theatre actor is you want to you want to be able to make sure that every audience coming in is having a special experience. And I feel like I'm a little bit closer to being able to do that, which is so exciting as an actor. And Patrick, what can we expect from you in 2023? In 2023, I'm going to be in New York City. So you won't be able to expect all that much from me in terms of work, but um, you can definitely follow my journey uh, through my social media. I've been very lucky to receive the Martin Bequest and also the Ian Potter Cultural Trust grant to go to New York City for 18 months to further my actor training, to immerse myself in the New York City theatre scene. So uh, look forward to 2024 when I'll be back in Melbourne making more work. Well, Patrick Liversey, it's a very exciting time for you. Cavemen at Chapel Off Chapel sounds truly wondrous and it is showing November 23 to December 4. Patrick Liversey, thank you so much for chatting with us today on 3CR. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure. The wonderful Patrick Liversey there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave live in the studio. Taking us out is Duffy, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.